Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and our very special guest, Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, Heidi, welcome back to the show. Hello. Thanks, David. So, Karen, I have a question for you. Yes. Did your family that was in town actually leave you alone while you were recording last week? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, they did. And I still have some family here, and I just called them and said, don't forget, I'm recording a podcast. <laughs> so anyway. Do they know what podcasts are? <laughs> um, that, rem- I, that I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> They've been around for a while now, and I've been doing this for a long time, and I still get people who say, wait, a what now? But, you know, we're in the business of education, so. That's right. We are here to discuss Sense and Sensibility. We are going to be discussing uh, Volume 1, Chapters 9 through 15. Um, So that section ends with the chapter where Willoughby departs and Eleanor and Mrs. Dashwood debate the whole situation. Mm. Uh, So that's, that's where the section ends. And we will be finishing volume one next week. So just for everyone getting their bearings. Before we dive into the conversation, though, I just want to remind you about our friends over at Classical Academic Press and their Classical U program. If you are a busy school or homeschool educator who is, you know, despite being busy, enthusiastic about the classical tradition of education, maybe you wish you'd been classically trained. Well, then Classical U was created with you in mind. They're confident that this resource will inspire educators in schools, homeschools, co-ops, all kinds of different settings to dig deep into the richness of learning, no matter where you find yourself on your journey in classical education. Discover over 35 self-paced courses. They have regularly added content all the time, and they have uh, various forms of community, including forums. And then they also have recently added accreditation through ACSI. You can begin your journey at classicalu.com and Close Reads listeners can try Classical U free through June 29th. All you got to do is visit classicalu.com slash code, C-O-D-E, and then enter the code Cersei Podcast at checkout and you'll get access through June 29th. So thanks to Chris Perrin and the whole team at Classical Academic Press for sponsoring Close Reads uh, the last couple months. And I hope you'll check out their program. We've got some uh, lectures up on there as well that you, you can check out. Okay, Sense and Sensibility. We talked a lot, well, maybe not a lot, I don't know. We talked last week about the idea of this book being a comedy of manners, about the satire going into it. So I was thinking, as I was reading, of course, about that, uh, and I started thinking about whether we're supposed to see all the characters as being satirized. So I was thinking, for example, about the differences in these chapters between Eleanor and Marianne, between Mrs. Dashwood and uh, Mrs. Jennings. There's all these different characters that have sort of different registers about them. They have different tones. So Karen, I want to ask you this. Do you think that we are supposed to see, we call this a satirical novel. So do you think we're supposed to read all the characters at the same level of satire? Does that question make sense? No, that's a great question. And I think this is one of the most challenging aspects of reading Austen. Um, It varies in her novels, but uh, this one is particularly challenging in that respect because there are many different satirical voices. It's not just, you know, if you say, say the greatest example of English satire, Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal, right? Um, Where he proposes that the Irish raise children to be eaten by the English in order to survive. Um, there's like, it's, it's great satire, but there's one satirical voice. There's one persona that is making this proposal ironically. 
But mm-hmm. in um, in Austin, you know, she slips in and out of different levels of satire and, and earnestness and um, yeah, yeah. It, it shifts and you really have to constantly be on your guard to sort of hear the tone that you're supposed to uh, read each part with. Mm. I was reading that for chapter 15, um, that episode in chapter 15 with this question in mind in particular, because I was thinking about the way Eleanor was responding to Marianne and Willoughby's relationship to the way Margaret treats the relationship to the way her mother responds to it. Mm-hmm. And those, and you can, in some areas or in some characters, some scenes, some moments, you can see the satire um, more clearly. You can, you can tell that Austin's trying to actively be satirical. And then in Eleanor, Sometimes you, it's easy to to agree with the way she responds. You know her her sort of um, reserved nature, her um, discretion, all those sorts of things that she values are things that we value as readers. Well, ostensibly, <laughs> but but then it's hard to know. Well, is her response also being satirized? Is her discretion? Is her sort of um um prudence? I guess mm-hmm. it would be the word. Is that also being satirized? How do you, do you how do you read Eleanor? I want to go ask you that, and then I want to hear what Karen how Karen responds to that. How I read Eleanor? Yeah, in these partic- particular in these chapters, and particularly in the way that she responds to Marianne and Willoughby's relationship, like the sort of what we're right. supposed to read as a sort of as a sort of prudence or, or wisdom, I guess. Right, that she like. has some caution and some reserve. Now yeah, the readers. Yeah. Even at this point in the novel, if this is the first time reading the novel, we don't know what happens with Willoughby yet. And so the only clue we really have that there's some potential trouble spots is Eleanor's reaction. In every other way, Willoughby Mm. is a paragon so far in the story. And everything that Marianne has been looking for, and he's just delightful to the family. and And by so far, you mean up until the point when he basically leaves? Yes, Yes, exactly. Up to the point that we have read, the only indication that we have that something might be a little off is the fact that he's just left and we don't know why, which could have been, I mean, Brandon has also left. So there's, um, and then we also know that Eleanor has some kind of internal sensor going off about maybe there's something not quite right here. They have no, she has no concrete evidence that Marianne and Willoughby are engaged, which of course within this society, Marianne's behavior would have been very improper and so would Willoughby's if they were not. But if they had some kind of secret engagement, which everybody else is assuming because Willoughby seems so wonderful. So um, yeah, I think the fact that Eleanor is so cautious and prudent, not yet in the novel do we know whether or not that's necessary or whether or not she's being overly cautious and overly, you know, just suspicious, which is what some people suspect of her. Suspicious, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that maybe she's, you know, overreacting. Um, And so, but her good sense is so obvious that all all kind of discerning readers who are paying attention are, have their radar up at this point. The novel certainly seems to be suggesting that we that she's meant to be trustworthy. Right. Yes. So mm-hmm. would you agree with that, Karen? 
That, that, uh, yes, absolutely. And I, I would just say that even as we, you know, for people who are reading it for the first time, um, don't know how things turn out with Willoughby. We also don't know how things turn out with Eleanor and uh-huh. yet, the corrections she needs and the lessons she learns. I mean, even at the end of chapter 15 in one of her um, final um <laughs> Quote, she says, um, I love Willoughby, sincerely love him, and suspicion of his integrity cannot be more painful to yourself than to me. So she's acknowledging it, but she, she, you know, so she's a good, I mean, as Heidi said, we know something is amiss, yet even Eleanor can't quite see it. And she still, she also falls for Willoughby in the sense of believing his character and liking him and and hoping for the best. Um, And so we kind of, as readers make some of the same mistakes that even the most reliable character in the novel makes. Mm -hmm. Mm, That's interesting. Do you, so, huh, that gets me thinking about, so is the book, do you think, is Jane Austen trying to uh, sort of like a, in a, in a crime fiction novel or something, do you think she's trying to misdirect the readers about some of these characters? I think that's a really good question. Yep. Go ahead, Karen. Yeah, no, I was I was going to say abs- absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's more obvious. I keep, sorry to keep bringing up Pride and Prejudice, but it's just it's like one of the if you can get <laughs> Pride and Prejudice, I think it's easier to get all of the other awesome novels. But um, yeah, you know, with with Elizabeth Bennet, we're supposed to re- she's an even more extreme version of Eleanor. She's even more likable. We're supposed to really identify with Elizabeth because she's so uh, wonderful in just about every way, and yet um, we get tricked into thinking like Elizabeth, that her perspective and her, um, you know, her psychological insight is reliable. And then we find out that it's not. So I think this is one of Austin's great um, arts is to, is this kind of misdirection, as you put it. Hmm. Right. She succeeds at that, I think, very well. And as Karen pointed out, other satirical novelists who are I mean, great. Like she said, Jonathan Swift is considered the greatest satirical novel. That that particular, as is that that's not really a novel. It's an essay, right? Right. The, yes. So, um, but there is this one voice with Jonathan Swift. But with Austin, you're slipping in and out of the. You know, some some of these characters are taking completely seriously, completely at face value, uh, whether or not they're foolish and to be judged the entire novel or whether or not they're steady and consistent and to be highly esteemed. And then there's those characters in the middle that we see a lot of reversals in. And that's particularly true in this novel. And that's one of the reasons why, even though, as we kind of pointed out last week, some of the writing, Jane Austen's still kind of finding her voice here. But the reversals that we have in the characters in this novel, I think, are just brilliant. And we're starting to see a little bit of that at this point, although that definitely takes place later and later as we go. But we've, a lot of the readers, we have made judgments about these characters so far, whether or not they're, you know, quote, good or bad or foolish or silly, or whether we're judging them and making fun of them or whether or not we're taking them seriously. And as the novel progresses, there's some reversals that take place. And uh, and that, I think, is part of Jane Austen's brilliance in writing satire. Mm-hmm. Do you think that those reversals are due to, I mean, say the ones, well, can, can you give me an example for the sake of conversation of a reversal that you're seeing begin to take place here in these, these first chapters? Because I have a follow-up question on that. Sure. Um, I, I mean, 
probably at this point, one of the reversals that we're seeing, although it's not that funny, some of them are a little funnier <laughs> as we get go along, is with um, Mrs. Dashwood um, and or Eleanor. Because what we have here is Mrs. Dashwood in some ways pitted against Eleanor. They have a different perception of Willoughby right now. And so one of them is going to be wrong. And so depending on our perception of either one of them, there might be a reversal coming up here pretty quickly there. Um, but some of the funnier characters, we're going to get some big reversals on one way or the other as we progress. I, when, I suppose a reversal is a great opportunity for more comedy too. Right. But when, you, when you're talking about this idea of a reversal, are you talking about a reversal in the way that the character is or the way that the character is perceived by the reader? I think perceived. I think perception is what I'm talking about here. Because these characters in... Uh, um, with a couple, well, maybe both with a couple of characters, but I think we'll probably dig into that a little more as we go. But we already know some of the characters that we take seriously and all, and some of the, you know, like Eleanor um, mm-hmm. and, and Marianne, even though we might see some of their flaws, we also take them seriously. They are the heroines. They are the main character, the protagonists. We're rooting for them. Whereas some of these side characters like Mrs. Jennings, um, we, you know, they're funny characters. We're kind of making fun of them a little bit, um, and and as and cheering Austin along as she pokes fun, right? And so, some of those characters we're going to see a different perspective on as we go. And I do think it's a matter of perspective. Hmm. Karen, do you buy this reversal thing that she's talking about here? No, absolutely, I do. I mean, this is one of the things that. Um, situates Austin as a neoclassical rather than a romantic writer Mm. because Mm. um, so many of the conventions that we see in her are the classical conventions of comedy. I mean, comedy and tragedy both, um, both hinge on reversals. I mean, bigger reversals, reversals of fortune or reversals of, of disruption. Um, Mm. And so they're on a smaller scale in Austin, but we clearly see her following some of these, um, these, these classical and neoclassical conventions. And so um, it's, it's part of, you know, it's part of how satire works, whether it's a reversal in uh, the plot or reversal in our perception of a character or even a character um, developing. And, 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 and I would just temper that by saying that often one of the things that Austin nuances about these classical conventions is that, it's not always a reversal as much as it is a moderation. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, yeah, we get that good. in the title too. You know, we have these two extreme sense and sensibility and, you know, without giving too much away, you know, we're going to see them moderate um, by the end. Um, and so that, that's a lot of what Austin does is moderate or temper our misperceptions or our excesses or our, mm. you know, judgments. Mm. And it seems like in some ways she's trying, early in this novel at least, she's trying to, um, <clears throat> she's giving us all these different scenes and characters who may or may not have excess or lack or lack in those areas. And she's kind of drawing, she's kind of putting people on one side or the other of some sort of medium, like center. Mm-hmm. And, and part of the, the way, that the, the, part of the plot of the novel is helping us uh, kind of bringing bring us to see where different people are on that 
on that side of that center line, so to speak, that she ends up trying to draw you back to. I really like that idea that she's not necessarily trying to flip people around completely, but bring them towards the center. Right. That's that's really interesting. Is that, um, do you see that? And is that just classic Jane Austen or is that, you think that's something specific to this novel? Well, I think it's classic Jane Austen. I think it's actually a little bit more obvious in this, her early, you know, her earliest, one of her earliest works. Um, like it lacks subtlety? What? Do you mean that it lacks subtlety? Yeah, right, right. It's just, yeah. And even the, t- even the title itself, Sense and Sensibility, yeah, is, yeah. are these two extremes as understood uh, in their usage at that time. And this is, yeah. you know, this is Alistair McIntyre in his book, After Virtue, um, he talks about Austin as one of the last um, writers of virtue, um, and hmm. and that's you know that's really the classical definition of virtue is the moderation between an extreme of uh, excess and an extreme of deficiency. Um, and so I I do think this is what Austin basically does in all of her works. So do you think that by this point in the book she has? Um she has kind of clearly drawn the lines as far as these characters. Like it seems like we're supposed to assume at this point that Marianne has an excess, but has she gotten to the point yet? Do you think that Eleanor is supposed to, or whoever is supposed to have an excess or a lacking as well? Or, or at this point, would you say that Eleanor is sort of more um, stereotypically our heroine here? Either one of you can answer that, actually. You can just jump in, talk over each other. Well, I think that one thing that this novel excels at greatly is um, is kind of becoming a mirror of the reader's own perceptions of one or the other. Right. If you are Team Marianne, you are rooting for Willoughby right now. You are really wanting this thing to turn out well. You're so excited that she has found this man who meets all of her ideals. And 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 you're like, I'm glad you're being honest. Like, good job going upstairs and crying and being sad and fully owning your emotions in this repressed society. Right. Like, and then, but on the other hand, there's also if you're if your team Eleanor, if your team sense, you're you're seeing something else going on, right? And so I, I think that this particular novel does, especially among women, a remarkable job of of mirroring our own kind of way in which we emotionally engage with the world. And one of the reversals that happens in this novel is in the reader, as you go through the course of the novel and experience this story and how that kind of pulls out your own prejudices one way or the other and helps moderate them within the reader and but not in a way that's like a Aesop's fables kind of like um judgmental moralizing kind of way it just kind of draws you into the story and you respond to it There's not a moral at the end of every chapter. Right. And there's definitely, as Karen's saying, there definitely is a a cautionary tale. There is a moral to this story. There is a call to virtue embedded within the story, but it is a great novel. And so it's not written to say, hey, you should be more like Eleanor. It's that's, or wow, Eleanor, you just really need a Marianne to kind of draw out the heart inside of you, you cold hearted. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's not the point, but it's, it is an exploration. And I think this novel particularly excels at drawing the reader into the conflict and resolution and harmony and dissonance between those two different things in how we react and respond to what's going on in the novel. And I think we already see that at this point by chapter 15. 
Hmm. Yeah. And if I, if I can just pick up on, on, um, on the way that a good novel teaches, um, as opposed to Aesop's fables or, a sermon, not that there's anything wrong with those things. Right. Um, sure, sure. Yeah. But one, different. Of, one of the things that I love that Austin does, and this happens a lot in this novel, is rather than having, you know, uh, the narrator narrate everything, um, so many of the things that we learn about happening um, come through p- characters who have eavesdropped or Mm. who have seen something that's that seems like it could be only interpreted only one way it's a very clear thing Mm. and then they retell what they have overheard or what they saw or what they understood and so i mean that's number that's also another way that austin achieves misdirection but Mm. it's also a way that replicates real life because Uh so so much of what we experience and learn and think is not through direct experience, but through what we hear other people say or report. Um, It's just, it's really brilliant. And that happens, Mm. you know, that's already happened here with um, especially the the most humorous examples that occur side by side are are Margaret um, telling Eleanor about the lock of hair that Willoughby took from Marianne. And then she turns right around and tells everybody about, you know, Eleanor's in love with a man whose name begins with F, (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, so all of these stories, it's a world built by discourse, um, by stories. And, and ours is the same way. Um, We just have Twitter now telling us, (laughs) shaping our perceptions. Um, Sadly. (laughs) Um, So that's another thing, the way that Austin replicates real life in such a way that we can experience it and learn from it indirectly rather than having the moral told to us. Mm -hmm. Is that part of the, the comedy of manners factor? I mean, is that, is that part of that tradition? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, a comedy, a, a true comedy of manners um, is a drama, and so that's very you know portrayed in directly. Um, so I don't think so. I think this is something okay. maybe that's um, part of Austin's particular craft and style. Um, Would it have been uncommon in her time? Um. So. This is, I think I talked about this a little bit last time, but I think what, what tended, this is, this is Austin's great contribution to the art of the novel is I think that you off, you had novels that were told either in first person, like through a diary or through letters and like, just kind of very earnest and sincere and like, (laughs) blah, here's my whole self all over the page. Or you would have a very distant kind of third person narrator, um, and what Austin does is she mixes them. You get, you get a combination and it's very subtle and nuanced and, and artful. And so she's kind of drawn from, um, the extremes of the previous traditions and moderated them again. Um, that's her, that's her brilliant in writing novels. And I suppose the, the degree she to the degree to which she relies upon the dialogue and the eavesdropping helps enhance that all the different voices that she's uh presenting and all the different perspectives and things like that yes she exactly. couldn't have done that without that exactly and another you know another 
way to, I was thinking about this as I was rereading it and uh, thinking about people who might be reading it for the first time and, and thinking about the irony. Um, it's just, this is very, very basic, <laughs> but it's just really helpful to pay attention to what appears in quotation marks because that comes from a character and then then what is narrated indirectly by the narrator through perhaps another character's voice it can be so hard so hard to keep track of um but again just paying attention to reported speech and then paying attention to what's narrated and knowing that what's narrated is what we have to figure out oh how are we supposed to take this if that makes sense mm-hmm. i was struck that there were even well to, to me anyway, it seemed like there were pages where maybe there'd be a series of, maybe there'd be two pages of primarily dialogue, and then you'd get some kind of reflection about the dialogue, which was clearly meant to be in one of the participants' voice or in in their head. Mm-hmm. But then the next paragraph after that almost seems like it's another another level of distance, maybe maybe as you know a little more omniscient, where it starts talking about the weather or something, you know, something else is going on. So on the same page, you seem like you could have three or four different perspectives all kind of coming at you at the same time. And that, if you're not being, if you're not reading closely, then it can be, it can create sort of a dissonance. Um, it can be distracting even. Um, and, and one of the things I was thinking about is the way her writing, I I was having to catch myself because her writing is so, um, there's a lot of energy to it, you know, especially for maybe something of that period. And um, there's, you know, that the dialogue is very snappy in some ways. It, it, you, you can fi- I find myself reading very quickly. And then all of a sudden I'd realize, okay, now I'm not really sure whose head I'm in. <laughs> and if you're not, it kind of almost forces you to, to slow down and be a little more careful with it. Because if you're not careful, she can kind of just whisk you, whisk you away. And then all of a sudden you're I don't want to say confused, but you've been caught up in it. And maybe that's part of the art. Maybe mm-hmm. that's part of the artistry that gets you caught up in it. And so then you start questioning whose head you're actually in and whose perspective is the right one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can be a, maybe that disorientation is part of the point. Right. Right. I think that you're onto something with that, David. And I think you have to pay attention to Austin's writing because as you, uh, as you've both said, she switches perspectives so often that uh it's you have to be following along and then it's just so funny you don't want to miss anything especially with the dialogue as Karen's pointing out when a character is speaking um sometimes we take it at face value sometimes it's just hilariously ironic and uh really fun to try to figure out you know I'm thinking specifically of Mrs. Jennings how funny she is to read um and I think so much of Austin is just the pure delight of these ordinary kind of quotidian moments that uh, it, the first time you're reading the novel, you want to get to who marries whom and how do they get there and all that. But just slow down and pace yourself and read along because the novel is very quotidian. It's very ordinary. And, and um, it's there's just so much humor uh, embedded within the dialogue in, in, in these characters. Yeah, there's a lot I'm, of walking in the rain. Yeah, there is a lot of walking <laughs> yeah. in the rain. That is true. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it is a novel about England, so <laughs> that's true. I'm sorry, Karen. Go no, ahead. No, and I was, you know, I was thinking about um, because normally when the semester ends, I um, I'll often just want to read um, something 
by Thomas Hardy or something. And I was thinking about what is the difference <laughs> by this experience. I know, I know. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, Thomas Hardy, right. And, and a lot of others. That's just my, my easiest example. Those are novels to get lost in. And I was hmm. thinking about how you don't really get, well, if you do get, you're not supposed to get lost in Austin. You really do have to be kind of like on your guard and you're sort of outside the world looking in. Hmm. Um, hmm. And, and for, for all these reasons that we've been talking about. And so I, I think that's something that perhaps going into an Austin novel that might be helpful for people to think about. Like you're not really just getting lost in the world, this world of a, of a, univocal right. um, narrator. And so it is a different experience. Right. Um, I think that's yeah. insightful because the, the the narrator herself, Austin, the author, is poking fun at the world. So it's hard to get right. lost in a world that you're kind of mocking a little bit along the right. way. Right. But she speaks with great affection yeah. for it too. Like she... Yes. And so it's not just, you know, this incisive you know, deconstructive kind of commentary on a flawed society. It's, there's, it's, it's kind of the way you, you know, talk about your, your own family, right? When you're like, oh, mom, that's, why'd you do that? And you know, it's foolish, but you just love her so much. And so you do have to kind of pay attention to that, as you're saying. I like that idea of you don't really get lost in an Austin world. You have to be on your guard. I think that's really insightful. But you also have a great affection for it, too. Right. I mean, as a satirist, Austin is a Horatian satirist, not a juvenilian one. She's not, you know, she's not, she's, she's, she's not angry at the world. Um, She is, you know, offering a mild, amused, loving correction of a world that she's part of, you know, she's thinking outside of it, but she's also part of it. And that's what, you know, what our posture needs to be as well as we read her about her world. Yeah, it, she doesn't seem like she's a like she's cynical about it. Right? Maybe she is. Maybe right. that's why right. she. Maybe that's maybe I'm. Maybe that's the wrong word. But it's a little scathing. But it's not cynical. Right. Right. <laughs> kind of like you. How do you mentioned? Uh, you know, like if it's your mom or something. And I always think about that concept of, um, you know, you, like you, two brothers, they'll fight each other tooth and nail. They'll bloody each other up. But then if someone else jumps in there to fight one of their brothers, they're the first person to defend them. (laughs) Kind of imagine Jane Austen probably was like also the first person that would have been prepared to defend the culture that she was a part of. Right. Because it doesn't, it does seem loving. It does seem like she has affection for the world. And that's why she cares about the virtue, you know, the preservation of virtues or the living out of virtues or or however you want to put it. Right. Um, So even while she's critiquing some of the norms of marriage of her day she's not trying to deconstruct the institution right you know she's just um it's it's something very very different she just she sees some of the some of the corrections that need to be made some of the excesses but um you know she's not upsetting the whole apple cart Hmm. there was a passage that i thought we should spend some time on um before we do that i want to ask you about the the male characters in this in this book. Now, I guess it's a little bit of a of a shifting of gears here. Um, but when we when you read about Will Willoughby and um, let's see who who are all the male, male characters we've met at this point through chapter fifteen. Willoughby, obviously, we've met John Dashwood, Colonel Brandon, John Dashwood, mm-hmm. 
Lord anybody Middleton. else at this point? Yeah. Hmm. Is that it so far? Okay. So of those characters, are we supposed to? Oh, and Edward, of are course. Are we supposed? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So okay. So there's five. That's actually more than I was thinking at this point. Okay. So there's five male characters who we've been presented with, <clears throat> and um, they all seem pretty different. And the various voices in the novel um, speak of them in all kinds of different ways, sometimes respectfully, sometimes, you know, cynically, sometimes very lovingly. <laughs> um, they describe, they're described in, you know, quite a bit of detail. Um, you know, I think I mentioned last week that there seems to be that, that passage where they describe Willoughby in sort of like Marianne's ideal, <laughs> ideal type of man. Um, so with all these different descriptions, are, are we supposed to, do you think, um, take are we supposed to take those descriptions at, and those ways of looking and thinking about these men as reliable at this point in the novel because how else you know it, it's difficult to know exactly how we're supposed to feel about the men in particular because th- we're not inside their heads you know mm-hmm. so far we haven't been really inside the perspective of any of the men and so um it, there's all these varying varying perspectives on someone like Willoughby and it's hard to know exactly how we are supposed to to think about him and, and to what degree we're supposed to, I don't know. Right. I don't, I don't want to oversimplify it, but to, to which we're supposed to trust or like them. What, Karen, what do you think about hmm. the, the men in, in the book? I, that's a, that's, I mean, we're not very far into it. So. Right. That's a really um, good question because, mm-hmm. um, you know, even though we have the, the free and direct discourse and the different perspectives, um, most of the time, at least so far, it is from the female character's perspective, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's Eleanor or Marianne. And so in many respects, and I'm just sort of thinking out loud here because you've asked such a good question I haven't thought about before. Um, in many respects, I think a lot, the men are all other, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. so, um, so we almost have to reserve judgment based on the outcome of the plot, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. I'm thinking about this. Heidi, what do you think? I completely agree with you. And I I can never tell in reading Austin, I'd be really curious to hear both your opinions on this. I can never tell in reading Austin whether or not we we don't get behind the eyes of the male characters because it's a plot device in order to kind of keep us guessing for the resolution of the novel. Like if we had as much insight into Willoughby as we do into Marianne or into Edward as we do into Eleanor, we would have no idea or we would absolutely know what's going to happen. Right, right. right. So right, I can't right. always tell if it's that or if it's just that's how men were to Jane Austen. Right. Like, right. No. Is, <laughs> Maybe both. I think both. And it's funny you say this, David. I was just having a conversation last night with a friend to whom I had introduced John Le Carre after reading. And I said, you've got to read these books. And we we're having this exact same conversation about the women of Le Carre. Does he understand women at all? Yeah. Right. This is just such a male dominated society. Are, are the women portrayed faith? is this, you know, what do we do with these female characters? And I think we have the same question in Austin, which is pretty rare, right? I mean, usually you're behind the eyes of the male characters in a lot of novels, but in Austin, it is, you know exactly what the women are thinking and feeling. And even if you have to get, even if there's irony, even if she's not telling you, you still kind of feel Mm -hmm. it as you're going, but it's, 
You have, a, you have a sense that of it. Men are just. No. It, it always makes me think. Are you guys Agatha Christie fans? It makes me think every single time of Miss Marple, and how she says in one of her murder mysteries, "I'm having my nephew Raymond over for dinner, and I have to make sure I have whiskey." And men always require such a lot of meat. That's <laughs> 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 like she has no idea what to do with a man. Like what these men are like foreign <laughs> creatures to her. And I think in this and. I can't tell if Austin is doing it kind of on purpose or if mm-hmm. that's her own perspective on men. Like, I have no idea what to do with men. So that's, hmm. anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really curious what you guys think about that. Well, I do think that it's important that, <clears throat> I mean, we talked about all these different voices that the novel kind of is presented in, but ultimately it seems like by the end of most of her novels, I mean, really, it's, a, it's about being in the head of one or two specific mm-hmm. characters. And uh, you can correct me if we can debate about that. Um, but but being in the head of those one or two specific characters, there's, given the nature of the novels, there tends to be one or two specific men who are crucial to the lives of those one or two <laughs> specific women. And they are those men, part of the... Part of the, the the whole conflict, the whole point of the novel is the unraveling of the mystery that is those men in order to find a way to have a well-ordered relationship. Like the relationship between the, you know, Darcy and Elizabeth Bennett, like finding harmony in that relationship is about them kind of unraveling the mystery that is the other person. Mm-hmm. And in that case, if we're in Elizabeth's head and so you know, we have, we know more about her than we do about him, but he's also trying to unravel the mystery that is her sort of. Right. So that, I think that's a key part of it. Speak, I think, um, the Le Carre point is really interesting actually, because I, first of all, I suspect that John Le Carre would be very happy that you just compared him with Jane Austen. <laughs> um, and also in the little drummer girl, main character is, a uh-huh. woman. I haven't um, read that one yet. Some people consider it his best book, so you should, but it's. I was thinking a lot while reading this this time. I mentioned the crime fiction earlier that there that I I would not if if I would not be surprised at all if many of the great mystery and spy you know the espionage novelists from Graham Greene and Eric Ambler and whoever else if they were not big Jane Austen fans because she does reveal things in stages uh-huh. much like happens in a great spy novel um, and even in a lot of crime fiction novels or whatever you'll get. You, you might, sometimes you're only in the head of the detective. So it's kind of, you know, it's like a hard-boiled novel. But then sometimes you're in the head of multiple different characters and the mystery is less, you know, you might know more than the detective does, but how it all comes together is kind of the fun of the novel. Right. You know, um, sometimes those are a little bit more like pop novels, like a Michael Connelly novel or something. But she does unravel things similarly. And so if some, if early spy and crime novelist said I was they were big Jane Austen fans. Well, I guess probably most writers are big Jane Austen right. fans. But that wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me in terms of the mechanisms of revealing mysteries, especially mysteries about characters. Right. I think that's really insightful. I'm rambling. No, I think that's really interesting. I never thought of that before. I want to go back to one point that you made about Darcy and Elizabeth that I think is important uh, when it comes to the men in in Austin. And it is that what we know, even at the end of the novel, what we know about Darcy comes from Darcy. It is self-revelatory. We have, he is saying what he felt and was thinking and why he made certain decisions throughout the course of the novel. You mean in that final chapter at the end? Yes. 
And, you know, his letter to Elizabeth, even when he's being a jerk, right? His letters to her and... um, the, and what he reveals at the end in that final chapter. And I think that's also true here. The closest I think we get to it is the gentleness with which uh, Austin treats uh, Colonel Brandon in this story. There is just a an unfolding of his character throughout this novel, and we're already seeing it, that is different than how she treats Willoughby and um, Edward. But that there's just this this way of seeing how Colonel Brandon's character kind of unfurls throughout the course of the novel, as you pointed out, in stages, in conversations, the good opinion that Eleanor has of him from the very begin from the very beginning and how she watches him. There's just there's something really lovely about Colonel Brandon. He might be my favorite Austin male character because I think he's so complete, not just as a love object, but as a human. Hmm. Where does he stand on your uh, Jane Austen male ranking, Karen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, yeah, I, I will have to think about that. I mean, he's definitely one of one of my favorites, and um, that's very interesting and something to watch for the way that Colonel Brandon's um, character is developed and revealed because even later on when we, when we get Willoughby's explanation for his behavior, it's in his words, Uh right? It's his his reported Mm. speech. Um, Mm. and you know, and then we, we were left like Eleanor to sort of judge that it's not, uh, the narrator, um, really revealing that or developing that character. So that's a really interesting point that you're alluding to there, that there are times when Austin makes judgments for us. Mm -hmm. And then there are times when she asks us to make the judgment. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Right. Which, you know, and maybe those are the moments that have the most, the ones where we have to make the decision are the moments that end up having the most, I don't know what pathos. Right. (laughs) Because we, we feel it the strongest or the most strongly. Right. Well, and I, I think that in this novel, there's, I, I mean, maybe in all of Austin, but there's something about this novel in which you can put characters almost in categories, like a, a satirical char- character that's being satirized, a character who is fully developed, a character who is an object of love or desire, right? You can put them in these categories and some of them get reversed and some of them don't. And some of them, I do feel like Austin is telling me how to feel about this certain character. This is a foolish person and you're supposed to judge them. And uh, in some of her other novels, I think, and we keep bringing up Pride and Prejudice, Pride and Prejudice specifically, those that those kind of edges are a little bit more blunted and softened, I think, in which you can come and say, you know, somebody might say, I think Charlotte Lucas did what she had to do. And another character, another person might, another reader might say, no, she was a victim the whole time. You know what I mean? And But in Sense and Sensibility, there's a little bit of like, by the end of the novel, you've got characters in these categories and that's perfectly fine. Um, but that's not always the case with Austin, I think. Right. And I think that's just one of the, this is again, her, an earlier work right. where everything's a little bit starker and clearer, mm. um, but still, you know, still very well done. Yes. Yeah. I mentioned there was a passage that I wanted to touch on. It's really, I kind of wanted to compare two passages because the reason I asked about the men is because we have these two scenes where, where, the, where they, they each leave, basically. Mm-hmm. We've got Brandon gets called away under mm-hmm. mysterious circumstances. And then what in the next, the next chapter, the cha- two chapters later, um, 
Willoughby gets mm-hmm. well, he leaves, he leaves <laughs> right. under mysterious circumstances too. We don't know. The, the one thing they have in common, or one thing they have in common, is that they don't. Neither of them reveal why they have to leave, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they both leave unhappy people in the, in their wake. Mm-hmm. Um, are there differences though that can help in the ways that they depart that can that can help us dig into their two characters? Do you think? Oh, that's a good. That's a good question. Well, one difference, um, which might not be what you were thinking of, but it's the first one that occurs to me is, and, and this is part of what I talked about earlier, is that when um, when Colonel Brandon uh, leaves after getting a letter, um, we have Mrs. Jennings you know, doing all kinds of speculation and, and actually reporting, uh, something that, well, let me not say that yet. Uh, but saying, (laughs) giving, of course it is a 200 year old novel. Reporting something that turns out later to be not quite accurate. Um, (laughs) you know, that, that he has this natural daughter and, oh, this must be why he's leaving. And so his departure ends up, it's like, it, in some regard, it's it's more dramatic because of what Mrs. Jennings is saying about it, and and mm. you know, and and blowing it up into something that it turns out not to be. Um, whereas with Willoughby, there's almost like no explanation other than you know the normal uh, financial one, I guess. You know that it's his patroness calling and you know he has no choice i mean it's more mysterious than that but it's not surrounded with as much um discursive drama Mm -hmm. i guess Mm. yeah but in both cases people are left sort of trying to create a narrative that could make sense yeah yeah like they're trying to they're trying to look at all these different clues and and try to figure it out and and mrs jennings fashions you know she thinks she's a little you know she, maybe she thinks she's miss marple or, or, <laughs> or whatever she's got all these clues and things she thinks she knows and she's going to put them together and she's going to solve it and she's going to give everyone answers that they want <clears throat> whereas right. you know with, with willoughby it's you marianne's just kind of left sobbing and eleanor's like kind of got that told you so vibe going on right. i think the miss jennings response to colonel brandon it's just kind of this stealth brilliant on Jane Austen's part because that's what all the readers are doing. Like, like we're, we make fun of Mrs. Jennings, right? Like, oh, she's so silly. But like, all of us are doing that. All of us. Yeah. So, yeah, Mrs. Jennings. <laughs> we are implicated then as we're reading it and kind of pointing our finger at her and oh, but mm-hmm. all of us have thought of all the things she says and that right. and trying to figure it out. And I, I just think one more, even in this early novel as we've, you know, kind of pointed a little bit of the weaknesses that is so brilliant and subtle and like she really is Jane Austen really is just an absolutely brilliant novelist mm-hmm. yeah I love this little description at the beginning of chapter 14 um, about Mrs. Jennings was a great wonderer <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah aren't we all yes as everyone must be who takes a very lively interest in all the comings and goings of all their acquaintances <laughs> Uh, and she, I love the next part too. She wondered with little intermission what could be the reason of it. Yes. <laughs> she was sure there must be some bad news. <laughs> of course. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Something very melancholy must be the matter, she says. <laughs> and she thinks she knows 
other people too, because she says, well, I could see it in his face. <laughs> I, I just looked at him and I knew what the problem was. And, you know? and we all do this, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we're so certain of our perspective and understanding and interpretation. <laughs> Yeah. And well, that's the genius thing about having all these different perspectives too, because she gives us these characters that in some ways do sort of represent or, or appeal to, uh, I don't know, the baser instincts, the baser ways that we might respond to the more negative ways that we would respond to something. Because as you say, we all are Mrs. Jennings. And then sometimes she has characters that seem to represent the more noble way we might respond to something. And then every, most characters are sort of in between. But all those different perspectives, we have to constantly be judging which one, in a sense, which one is the most um, virtuous. Mm -hmm. So there's that constant exercise of making judgments that the book's demanding of us throughout the whole thing. You know, judging, not just judging whether a character is virtuous, but, you know, judging um, whether what they're doing is virtuous, whether what they're saying is virtuous. There's all these different little micro judgments, I guess, that we're being forced to do. But I guess that's just the action of reading, right? Right, right. right. I mean, you write about that in your book, I, I suppose. You just wrote a whole book about it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And it's the action of living, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that's we interpret everything around us all day long. Um, it's another kind of reading. Mm-hmm. Do you make, do you, this, I guess this is you know not specific about this book, but on the act of reading itself, do you make a distinction between interpretation and judgment? Well, I think interpretation comes first. You know, we interpret and then judge, I guess, um, based on our interpretation. And maybe maybe interpretation is a little bit more um, or less conscious and aware, or can be less mm. conscious and aware. Well, I guess judgment can be too, but um, I think judgment is based on interpretation. Mm. So interpretation is more in the realm of um, the observation, gathering of facts, and then judgment is the deciding what they mean or yeah, is it well, my interpretation making... is deciding um the meaning of the facts but then from mm. the meaning we make a judgment i guess um like okay you know well this right is, okay yeah. yeah yeah well an interpretation takes place within the world of a story right you're interpreting what's happening based mm-hmm. on the terms that are set by the narrative itself and judgment is something that happens from the outside onto this story. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? Karen? Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 thinking about the kind of the and judgment um yeah, I mean we could agree on we, we see certain facts, certain details and interpret them and then we can uh you know, so so for example, um you know, in Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth's judgment of Darcy's proposal was to turn it down. You know, I, 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 uh, yeah, so it's yeah. the judgment. It doesn't always have to be action, but I think um, sure, it, sure, it's, yeah. it's the closest thing to the to this action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so interpretation, judgment, action. Mm-hmm. We have a. Um... We've had kind of an ongoing debate with listeners and other guests who've come on about this the idea of like asking students to to judge um, characters in books um, as opposed to judging oh. an author. Say, oh, yeah, judgment <clears throat> and, um, is bad. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, so so on the one hand, there's the I mean, maybe a, maybe a student or a young person doesn't know enough to to be able to say, oh, this, this is a bad book, right? I feel like this is a bad book. That's it. And that's, they're judging the quality of the author and the, 
maybe they're not educated or or knowledgeable or far enough along in their journey to to, to do that. Although they're going mm-hmm. to, even if we don't ask them right, to. Right. But then when it comes to asking students to to judge the judgment of a character, where does that come in for you in the teaching process? So you mentioned Elizabeth Bennett. She judge she makes a judgment about Darcy's proposal and how to mm-hmm. respond to that. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about Pride and Prejudice, or I don't know, I mean, maybe we're not far enough along in this book, but or maybe we maybe we could be looking at Eleanor's response, initial sort of instinctive response to mm-hmm. to Willoughby. That's good. Um, she's making a judgment about mm-hmm. about um, Willoughby based on various for various reasons. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about the book with your students, would you talk about would you ask them or or have a discussion that says, do you think she made the right decision or she should have done that or how how would you how do you approach that concept with students now i realize you're maybe you're doing this with college students so we can ask more of them than we can a, you know a seventh grader like the ones that heidi was trying to read mansfield park with or emma mm-hmm. sorry emma um but so anyway i'm rambling now to yeah, give you a chance no, to think i mean but. this is I, I, this is what what we do with literature i mean i, I don't mm-hmm. know if i necessarily use the word judgment um, sure, but sure. It, it came up in the conversation. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I kind of, so, I mean, it's just interpretation and analysis. And, um, and I, I think I probably do this a lot just because I think, because I want to highlight and sort of make large that this is what reading is. And this is, you know, as I said mm-hmm. before, what we also do in life. So yes, let's sit there and, and dissect, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Elizabeth and, and Darcy and the letter and Charlotte. And yes, we have, I, I, one of my favorite parts of teaching Pride and Prejudice is talking about what Heidi just brought up about, you know, Charlotte's decision to marry Collins. Like it, it can be, that's yeah. something that can, you can have a lot of, of well-supported opinions about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, I mean, to me, this is one of the the great gifts of great literature is that it gives us the opportunity to practice our interpretation skills, our discernment skills, our skills of judgment. Um, and so, yeah, we do this a lot. One, one way that I will set when I'm teaching to kind of disconnect what students might impose upon a novel that has maybe a different set of terms for how it judges its own characters. Like, for example, Jane Austen. Nowadays, Marianne's conduct with Willoughby, there's no question that that's perfectly appropriate within our society right now. In fact, very, very tame. But obviously within this society, she is doing something that lacks decorum with Willoughby Mm -hmm. if they're not engaged secretly, Mm -hmm. right? And so one way that I'll kind of disconnect that modern um, imposition upon a novel like this, in which there's a different set of moral terms within the the world of the novel than there is within ours, is to to ask the student to make judgments based on both. So I'll say, okay, um, students, Mm -hmm. like how... Is what Marianne, is her conduct with Willoughby, should she have done that based on kind of the world of dating today? And they'll say, sure, that's fine. Okay. Based on the worlds of interactions between men and women in their time. That's kind of a low bar. Exactly. Yes. Which they have. That's their bar. And so they look at a novel like this and don't understand what the big deal is. So I'll say, okay, well... 
Now let's look at it within Jane Austen's world, within Regency England, based on these standards. And maybe that brings in a little bit of a lecture on, given by the teacher, given by me on these standards, and then say, based on that, should Marianne have done that, right? And then there's a conversation that you can have with your students to get into the world of the novel and then be able to kind of evaluate or make judgments about their our own society and the way we've been raised and formed compared to Austen. And I do that with the Iliad. I do it with Shakespeare. I do it with everything I teach. This idea of let's look at, we, there are different ways to look at a moral choice within a novel. And then that creates then a whole other conversation on how we make judgments now. And so I think that um, teaching college, it's so much more sophisticated than some of the students that some of us, you know, are are teaching. And so kind of that, that particular question can, um, can help as we're make, forming our own judgments. Hmm. Do you think that's true that it's more sophisticated teaching college students? I mean, it obviously is in some ways, but. <laughs> well, uh, ideally, yes. No, 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 it is. I mean, by the time I'm teaching in an upper level, um, class for yeah, English majors yeah. that they're, you know, understanding that we're talking about the world of the novel. And, and there's a lot of real life, you know, real world application that we can make and, and parallels we can make. Um, but yes, we're judging the text on the terms of the text. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was thinking about that. Eh, well, I was thinking about something and now I forgot what I was going to say. I just got a text from my wife <laughs> saying that the baby's not napping and the three-year-old has pooped six times today and not in the toilet. So. <laughs> I take it that's a high so, number, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> threw me, threw okay. me off there for yeah. a minute. Speaking of real-world applications, right? That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I need to give her a chance to go just read some Jane Austen for a while. Um so we've got we've got for almost an hour here, and I know Heidi, you have to go pick. Speaking of real world, you have to go pick up your son from school, and Karen, you have family are down. So, what as you're let's just I guess let's turn to some final thoughts here because as we're we're going into the last part of book three, we have this first real like you know we've had hints of drama with Brandon and um, obviously their the father dying before you know kind of off stage and so forth. So there's been hints of drama, but we at least have our first hint of well maybe it's just melodrama but something is happening here with with willoughby and he leaves and he kind of leaves marianne behind very upset and so things are starting to kick into high gear here so what are you what are the questions you're asking as we read these last chapters of of volume one uh for next week heidi i'll let you ask that first in case you need to go sure i um i think it's simple right at this point i'm wanting to know what's going on with willoughby and what is going on with, you know, obviously, why did he leave? And then whether or not they're secretly engaged, because the answer to those two questions, obviously, is a very big um, conflict of the novel. We have now gone far enough that we have, as you pointed out, actual conflicts within the novel. We're not just doing character development. We are into the plot. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering that because there's especially the question of the engagement that I think is the focus here. Hmm. What? Why? Because of the. <laughs> I mean, for more sure. than just—is it more than just plot? Um. Yeah, that has to do with as we're just talking about judgments. Um. 
If Eleanor is wrong about that, what does that say about her character? If she is right, what does that say about Marianne's? And so that is crucial moving forward. Um, And in some ways more important than what happens with Willoughby because, again, he is... He's definitely not tangential to the plot. He is the plot at this point. But the the question is more about sense and sensibility than it is at this point who marries whom. Okay, you can leave now. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Uh, this was great. Karen, what about you? Um, well, I would say, I mean, in addition, I mean, those are the big questions. Uh, another mm-hmm. qu- sort of lingering question is, uh, hey, where's Edward? Like, he just kind yeah, of yeah. been off scene for a while. And then also, I think especially for first time readers or people new to, to the world of Austin, like, what is up with this big deal about second attachments? Um, I mean, clearly that's going to play a role and, um, I, I do wonder what, uh, what, uh, people on team Marianne think about her, um, her belief in, uh, in the perfect match or the soulmate yeah. and, um, yeah. you know, obviously that's going to be developed. And so I, I, I love thinking about that and talking about that theme. Yeah. That was one of those concepts that I had marked down to possibly, uh, talk about today, but I mean, we, didn't we didn't get there, but that that's definitely gonna be something that that um having not read this in a long time, uh that's that's something I'm that piqued my interest that I'm gonna be kinda of looking out for to see okay, if yeah, we, you know, is that part least. of the reason why she is so enamored with him and, and so distraught when he leaves? I mean, it seems like it has to be that that maybe she thinks that this is like the soulmate for her or something like that. Yeah, yeah. We'll have <laughs> to talk about that later for sure. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, thank you for, for being here. Uh, thank you. Heidi, are you still here? No, I think she's gone. <laughs> well, thank you, Karen, for, for joining me and, and Heidi and uh, for taking, taking part in this conversation. It's been great having you here and having your, uh, just your background and, and all the knowledge that you have is really helping open up things. And got some great comments on, on, on our uh, Facebook page that, that with all these, people, all these listeners who are commenting on it, lots of nice things to say about your participation. So thank you for being oh, here. Oh, great. Glad to hear. Glad to, glad to be part of it and uh, looking forward to next week. Yes. Uh, so again, that we will finish up volume one. So that's chapters... Well, actually, off the top of my head, I don't remember. But it's, we'll finish volume one. Um, and are all... By the way, are all editions divided into three volumes? Or are some of them just 45 chapters or whatever? Uh, Do you know? I, uh, the ones that I have are divided into volumes, but there probably okay. are some... Yeah, there's so many different versions. So I, I, sure. I'm going yeah, yeah. by the volumes. Yeah. Are you going to be doing that, the three volume structure with your edition? You know, that's a good question because the my publisher will be selecting the edition, you know, based, hopefully if, if there are more than one available by public domain and whatever, I mean, then, then we'll be using that one, but I haven't um, gotten that far yet, but it, it was actually, sure, sure. I realized I need to ask that soon because I, I'm marking <laughs> up my text and thinking, Oh, I need to make sure I'm using the same one that will be my publisher will use. Yeah. You don't want to have to go back and <laughs> right. figure out wh- how to mark up all your notes and everything. <laughs> 
Well, again, thank you for being here. Uh, thanks to everyone who's been listening. Uh, if you want to participate in the conversation, you can head over to Facebook and the uh, Close Reads uh, Facebook groups over there. Lots of good conversation. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as well at Close Reads Pods. And uh, if you have any questions or comments that you want to leave, you can email us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And uh, don't forget that you can head over to classicalu.com slash code, enter the code Podcast at checkout and get free access to Classical U through June 29th. All right, with that for Karen Swallow-Pryor and for Heidi White, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Happy reading, and we'll talk to you next week. 